Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me into a deep dive into church history, into the biblical canon, into tradition, into why some churches worshipped one way and other churches worshipped a different way. I looked into the early church, the, the church fathers, and the Catholic church. It was inevitable in a study of church history, and there it was, looming large. And it was then, as I began to read from Catholic theologians and apologists, that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was oftentimes based on misinformation and simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholics from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by James Merrick. Dr. Merrick is a former Episcopal priest, an Anglican academic, and a convert to Catholicism. We have a fantastic conversation about why he became Catholic, what was involved in that, the reasons behind his thinking, what led him out of his evangelical upbringing, into the Anglican Church, and ultimately into the Catholic Church. It's a great discussion for those who are Anglican, Episcopalian, anyone who's thinking about the Catholic Church, who's converted to the Catholic Church, who's newly Catholic, even Catholics who've been there for a long time will have something in this episode to appreciate. I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Thank you to those who are supporting this show financially. Thank you for listening, thank you for your prayers, and thank you so much for those who are underpinning this show with your financial contributions. We're currently working on making this room into a bedroom for our third child, a daughter, and moving me into the basement and carving a little nook there for this studio equipment. So presently, your support is going towards making that possible, making it possible for me to continue this show and have some space to do that. So thank you. That's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or one-time donations at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. James Merrick, a former Episcopal priest, an Anglican academic, and Catholic convert. Please listen and enjoy. Friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. We're going to have a fantastic discussion this week. I'm joined by a wonderful guest to tell his story on coming into the Catholic Church. I'm talking about Dr. James Merrick. Dr. Merrick is the Director of Emmaus Academic and Director of Clergy Support for the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's a lecturer at Franciscan University of Steubenville as well. 
A convert to the church, he completed a Master's of Arts in Biblical and Systematic Theology and a Master of Theology in Church History at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He completed his Ph.D. on the theology of Karl Barth under Professor John Webster at King's College, University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Before entering the church in Scotland, he served as an Episcopal priest for a decade in both the U.S. and the U.K. He has taught theology at the high school, undergraduate, and graduate levels, and he writes for the National Catholic Register, Angelus News, and Ascension Press. I can't tell you how pleased I am to have him on the program with us this week. Thank you for being here, Dr. Merrick. Welcome to the show, and hello. Thanks for having me, Keith. It's great to be here. <laughs> Look, there's so much in that bio that I want to dig into, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, I want to start, if we can, at the beginning. I'm really curious with some of the your academic background. What in what faith tradition, if it's faith tradition at all, were you raised in? Like, where did you begin uh, to to experience faith and religion? What was your faith life like uh, growing up? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I was really blessed. And in fact, becoming Catholic actually made me realize how blessed I was. I sort of took it for granted beforehand, but I was really blessed to be raised in a really vibrant Christian home. My parents were very devout. Uh, we lived right next door to my grandparents, and they likewise, very devout. Uh, my grandfather actually kind of built the church that I grew up in, uh, the interior at least, not the exterior. Um, and my grandmother, in fact, I really, to be honest, I'm probably still a Christian and a believer because of my grandmother's prayers. I think all of my family would say the same. Um, so, you know, I grew up in this environment that really encouraged faith, that uh, took it very seriously. My dad would put me to bed, teaching me Bible stories, uh, encouraging me to pray to be like David or be like Solomon or be like Job. Um, and my grandmother, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the tradition of the sinner's prayer, but my grandmother led me in the sinner's prayer, which is kind of an interesting thing um, because evangelicals, at least the evangelical tradition that I grew up in, uh, is, is skeptical of formulaic prayers, but they have at least one, which is the <laughs> sinner's prayer. And there's a sort of format that you have to follow. Uh, and she led me in that, I think at the age of five when we were, uh, on vacation in Maryland. And, uh, so I grew up in, in really what was an independent Baptist. Environment. Uh, so if you're familiar with it, it's, it's has a little bit of affinity with what's now known as fundamentalism, although it wasn't quite a rigid and you can get some, some very rigid forms of fundamentalism, but I wasn't quite there. Uh, we did read other Bible translations in the King James, <laughs> um, so we didn't we didn't quite practice separate a second degree separation and and so on. Um, my my family wasn't, I would say, hostile to Catholics, but they were definitely suspicious. You know, my grandmother would say things like, "Oh, you know, so and so, she's a Catholic, but I know she knows the Lord." You know, so there was a <laughs> well, you know, it's a hard route to get to Christianity from uh, Catholicism, but it's possible. So. I wasn't, um, you know, warned really heavily about Catholics, um, but there was definitely a kind of suspicion there. Um, and so, uh, you know, I grew up with a really great uh, home environment that encouraged faith and taught me to pray, taught me to read the Bible, taught me uh, the importance of church, of, of piety. Um, and really, like I said, 
um, you know, coming into the Catholic Church actually uh, allowed that to really be integrated in myself. I think, you know, there was a period of time where I'd kind of come away from that. Uh, but becoming Catholic actually kind of brought that back and put it on a firmer foundation, which is a beautiful thing because it's a little strange to be embarrassed about your upbringing, you know, um, but uh, it, it was very nice that the Catholic Church kind of made it feel more a part of me and kind of enriched it and enlivened it. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And there's a lot in there that, to unpack. I think the first thing you mentioned is the, the idea of the sinner's prayer and those formulaic prayers. I mean, I wasn't yeah. raised. I wasn't raised evangelical Christian. I became an evangelical Christian in kind of high school, early high school. I was I was saved. I said that prayer with some friends of mine, right, and became Christian. But then I I joined a Pentecostal tradition that I, I, I kid you not, even the Lord's Prayer was kind of too formulaic for us. You wouldn't hear the Lord's Prayer right. prayed in church because it was vain repetition. We wouldn't want to take something from the Bible and just repeat that kind of verbatim, we had to kind of make it our own. And the idea of repeating anything like that, any kind of formulaic right. thing was, was seen as, as pharisaical. Like the, 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 I think of the Pharisees, this kind of bland, empty right. religion. And not that we were necessarily outwardly hostile, like you say, towards Catholics. Oh, I had the very same view though, that, well, it's, <laughs> I'll you put that, it's a hard route to Christianity through Catholicism. I think you put that, or your, your grandma <laughs> put that perfectly. Yeah. Uh, that, that was kind of the case. That's kind of how we would have seen Catholics too. Not an, an anti-Catholicism, just that, well, they've got some things in the way of Jesus, some things in the way uh, on that road to Christ, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I also never learned the Lord's Prayer growing up, you know, which is fascinating. You know, <laughs> you think about how different that is from even like Lutheranism or, or Anglicanism, which I eventually became an Anglican for a period of time. You know, lear- learning the Lord's Prayer is, is, is something you do very early on. Uh, and of course, you say it every Sunday. Uh, so, yeah, it was, you know, it's strange now thinking about it. But yeah, I mean, it's weird to think about. Oh, well, this can't be right for you to say, even though they're, it's Jesus's words, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's Jesus's words, but they're not your words. So they're not good enough for, you know, you got to find your own words. Very interesting. So you had a very vibrant, very faith-filled upbringing as a, a child. At some point you become an Anglican or an Episcopal priest. You, you dive heavily into theological studies and all this stuff. But what kind of led up to that point? What happened to your faith in in high school and as a young adult? Where did your faith life kind of go? Where did it grow uh, at that point? Yeah, you know, I think fairly, I would say maybe around seven, eight, or nine. I I really started, I don't know how to quite put it, and I haven't really fully understood it, but I just, I I kind of distanced myself from my faith. Uh, You know, it it just seemed whether it was kind of a rebelliousness or an alienation from my family on some level or something, it just, it didn't feel right. And so I just started caring more and more about other things. Uh, and, you know, computers were becoming a big thing when I was growing up. And so I kind of really got into learning about how to build computers and how to program computers and how to use computers. I actually got in a bit of trouble with, with, uh, <laughs> with computers uh, using somebody else's credit card information uh, before, you know, that was a, a, a security concern that we now live with. You can have me to thank for that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, that was kind of my thing. I was really excited about that. And then, of course, you know, just the general wanting to fit in in high school, wanting to have friends. I had my parents moved 
So I had the challenge of, of going to a new school. I did go to a Christian school for a while, and then now I was going to a public school. So I really wanted to not be weird, you know, especially as a new person. And I really, that was my concern, to be sort of popular, to be sort of uh, accepted. And, you know, that meant kind of doing a lot of the things that is sort of normal for a lot of high schoolers, you know, getting into a bit of partying and so on and, and mischief. Uh, and that was kind of what I cared about in high school. And, you know, my parents still tried to encourage me to go to youth group, but, you know, I had heard some things about the hypocrisy of some of the leaders, um, and, you know, at the, of the youth group. And it just, it just seemed, it seemed a little goofy and it seemed a little, um, uh, how should I say, just not, uh, not substantial. There wasn't a lot of, uh, intellectual rigor. And, you know, it seemed like it didn't take too long for you to get to the answer of, well, you just got to believe. And I, I didn't think there was a lot of intellectual substance in my faith. I don't know that I ever doubted God's existence. I think I always just accepted, yeah, of course there's a God. Someday I'll come around and have a relationship with him. But right now I'm too smart for that. I think it's kind of how I thought about <laughs> it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so in, in high school and in college, I really concern, I was concerned with worldly things. Um, and, uh, really towards the end of my, uh, time at university, time at university, um, I met my now wife and she seemed like a very serious person. And I felt like, well, if I'm going to try to date this person, I should probably be serious too. And at the same time, I, I had some good friends. I did end up going to a, a Christian college, um, uh, Taylor university out in the middle of Indiana. And they befriended me and invited me to this Bible study. And we listened to some apologetics. And it was the first time I kind of just started to think, oh, you could think about this faith. Like you can ask questions and you can actually argue things and come to a greater understanding. And people have thought about this. People have given time and effort. And that was a sort of significant moment for me. So I started to study the Bible on my own and start, it started to make sense and it's not just be so weird. And um, at Taylor University, we had these things called spiritual renewal weeks uh, at the beginning of every semester. And we had one that I went to that I was uh, really impacted by. And then the next semester, the spring semester, we had another one. And the person there described his own calling to ministry. And it was a strange experience for me because it, even though there was you know 1,500 or so people in this auditorium, uh, it was as if he was just speaking to me and I was sort of praying, asking Jesus, are you saying this to me? You know, because it was like he was talking directly to me and, and he was talking about his calling to ministry. And I was like, well, Jesus, you, you forget, I cannot sp speak in public. I dislike public speaking. I'm terrified. I'm terrible at it. There's no way you want me to preach, you know? Uh, and then he would, the, the guy who was speaking would talk about his own fears of public speaking and how the Lord brought to his mind the, the example of Moses and, and that he doesn't call necessarily the, the most proficient and eloquent people. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, that's not a good objection. And that was kind of the pattern. And at the end of this talk, um, my now wife asked to me, asked me, you know, what'd you think? And I said, I felt that I was maybe being called to ministry. And she said, that's strange. I felt that that was happening as well, that you were being called. And I was like, well, that's, that's really weird. <laughs> uh, and so I started to talk to people. I talked to my father. And, you know, I found out that my grandfather had said, you know, this boy is going to be a minister when I was young. And there was just all these people who sort of confirmed it. And I kept thinking, like, well, they know that I'm, like, 
the crazy high school rebel who got, you know, convicted of a felony for credit card theft when he was 14. You know, like, why are they thinking that I need to see this, this minister, you know, like this, this doesn't make sense. And, you know, pastors were uh, affirming that too. Uh, um, and so I, you know, it seemed like I should probably go and study theology and go into seminary. And so my dad kind of had set up for, for me to visit some seminaries and I uh, switched my major or, or my degree at Taylor from a BS, a bachelor of science to a bachelor of arts. So I could pick up Greek because they had a, a good Greek professor there. Uh, and so I took Greek at the end of my junior year, uh, at Taylor and, um, applied to a number of seminaries and ended up going to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, and that was, uh, my way into studying theology. And I, and, you know, I just, everything kind of came alive. I wasn't the best of students, but I love studying theology. Um, I joke that, you know, when I was growing up, I never read a book. I did all my book reports on Treasure Island. I only watched the Disney movie. <laughs> I never read the book. And now all of a sudden I had this massive bookshelf with like all these books and I was just reading all every spare moment. And, you know, it was a, it was a pretty significant transformation. Um, and, uh, you know, like I had like earrings and like a tattoo. I was in a band. You know, and then like, and my wife took, like, as soon as you started reading, you like didn't know how to dress yourself anymore. You know, it was like, I couldn't match things. Like I was just, it was a, it was a pretty radical transformation in a short period of time. And I th- and I remember people kind of looking at me like, what's happening to you? You know, like, what, you know, now all of a sudden you're this like holy person and you read the Bible. And, uh, so it was, uh, it was a pretty interesting experience. <laughs> hey, I love Treasure Island. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great book and great movie. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, that's a, a really amazing story you tell of your calling to the ministry uh, and, and that radical transformation that, that God, uh, you know, brought in your life. That's pretty remarkable. So I'm, I'm guessing that you, you doubled down, you ended up with two, two master's degrees from Trinity. It sounds like you kind of, right. you kind of, kept going you kept growing that bookshelf is that, is that what happened yeah well, yeah to my wife's great uh disdain but um, <laughs> yeah we uh you know i i jumped in and i was going to do a master of divinity but um i kept taking these upper level courses in church history and in theology and in and, and new testament and i had a friend who was in the admissions department and he kind of looked at me and he was over at our house with my wife and um, and he said right in front of her, you're going to be here forever trying to get a master of divinity degree. And you keep taking all these, you know, courses that are not part of that program. And she kind of looked like, you better figure this out. We're not going to be here much longer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, so, uh, he had kind of, kind of come up with the, the, the plan of me getting a master of arts in biblical and systematic theology and then a master of theology, which is actually kind of unusual because historically speaking, the master of theology is, is kind of seen as a finishing degree for a, a pastor who gets in it, but wants to maybe teach a class or two at a seminary. Um, and it's sort of like an academic finishing degree. So you're really not supposed to get it um, unless you have the master of divinity, but I just had enough credits to kind of have an equivalency of a master of divinity. Um, and so that's kind of how that worked out. And, and everybody was encouraging me to go on and do uh, a doctoral work. Um, you know, all of my professors were, you know, saying things at the end of my papers, you know, sort of saying, you should really go do this. And 
Um, you know, I had a, a great mentor in, in Kevin Van Hooser, and he was really encouraging me uh, to do this. And so it seemed like, you know, academics, um, you know, I still kind of, uh, well, I, I was ordained actually towards the end of my time. So I still felt deeply connected to pastoral ministry, but I kind of saw that more and more as like a teaching ministry. You know, I'd be a sort of teaching pastor, uh, which of course in the Anglican tradition, you have these these things called canon theologians. And, you know, they they kind of recognize the role of like an, a, a sort of doctor in the church who who sort of teaches and, and writes and helps the bishop you know, uh, assess issues and respond to things. And so that's kind of how I thought of my ministry is I would be more of an academic scholar who helped the church articulate her faith. Well, I'm curious here. I'm curious to ask you in a second where your faith was going at this point, because you mentioned as at the end of these studies, you became ordained. I'm curious what your view of, of the Catholic church was at this point, because so many people, myself included, have have become Catholic via church history, looking at church history and the history of Christianity. So I'm curious, as you were studying church history, as you were looking at these church history courses, what was happening in your faith life as this evangelical who, who began studying these things? Did that, did that cause you to, to, to change or, or shake your evangelical faith a little bit or ask some different questions you hadn't thought of before as you were studying that? Yeah, I sort of glossed over a big part of my time at Trinity, actually. So it's good that you kind of come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> so before I went to to seminary, as I said, I was really studying and reading everything I could get my hands on. And I happened to do an internship at a church um, and that, that um, the, the pastor was great, and he kind of made me read things. Uh, and he made me read this theologian named N.T. Wright, who I found fascinating because, you know, I grew up in a tradition that said the Bible is all that matters. You know, this is the, you, you need to understand the Bible. And then I come across this N.T. Wright guy who seemed to understand the Bible way better than anybody I had encountered before. I, you know, this guy knew the Bible, you know, better than any pastor. Um, and his knowledge was incredible. And I, th- I just thought that was such an interesting thing because in my experience, you know, the, the sign of your passion and devotion to the Lord is kind of excitement. It's measured by your excitement and maybe even your persistence. And I thought it was really interesting to see somebody like Wright, whose devotion and passion was was manifest in his dedication to study. You know, that, that kind of idea of like, I want to know that, I want to understand this. God has revealed something and I want to, to discover it in its fullness. I want to cherish it with my mind. And so... You know, Wright was somebody that kind of um, pushed the right button for me at that time as I'm wanting more intellectual substance in my faith. And, uh, you know, of course, Wright was, well, he still is an Anglican, uh, but at the time he was the Bishop of Durham. Uh, And um, so, you know, I started to think a little bit about Anglicanism. And so, uh, you know, I was heading down the the Canterbury Trail, as it were. I have been reading some other theologians like Robert Weber, uh, who's an Episcopal uh, priest and theologian. Um, who talks about the need to recover the the ancient church for today's challenges and and I was so I was really Anglican oriented going into seminary um, and part of that was because I had read some church history but um, there were moments where I thought about just going all the way into Catholicism in fact when we first got to Trinity my wife and I went to a, a Catholic church down the road um, and it was kind of like well you know maybe we just go all the way <laughs> why you know why why sort of stall out at 
at um, Anglicanism. So I had kind of dabbled, uh, you know, and I was reading, of course, a lot of church history and discovering that my own faith tradition was really modern. Uh, it, it was created, you know, in response to certain modern challenges and, and, and the aftermath of the Reformation and the Great Awakenings in America. And it just seemed like, well, there was a Christianity before this, long before this, and it was pretty consistent. And it seems like, you know, that's got to be valid on some level. It's not like God decided to start a church in 1700 or 1500. You know, there was a church long before this. And so discovering the prayers, discovering the spirituality, discovering the liturgy, discovering the, the theology um, of the early church was, uh, was a significant part of kind of really making Anglicanism appealing. And when I got to Trinity, there was a, a Catholic there sort of strangely, and might, he might have been the only Catholic to ever go to Trinity. I'm not sure, but he was certainly the only one uh, at the time. And I think you've had him on your show, Keith, uh, Dr. Andrew Swafford. <laughs> yes, indeed, um, we course, have. At the t- <laughs> Yeah, at, at the time, of course, uh, he was not doctor. <laughs> um, he, was, he was just known as Catholic Andy, because um, he was the only Catholic at our seminary. And um, But he came to Trinity to try to convince Protestants that Catholicism is biblical. And here I am, really excited about the early church, really excited about an sort of Anglican approach to Scripture where you're integrating tradition. And I think he was kind of like, ah, I've got one here. I've got a real candidate for conversion. And so he really uh, you know, invested in me, which was great, and asked me a bunch of questions, gave me a ton of books um, before he married his now wife, Sarah. Uh, she visited uh, Trinity, and uh, they kind of did this divide and conquer approach, where he was in my study, you know, grilling me and trying to get me to d- make a decision. And she was in the other room teaching my wife the rosary and telling her about, you know, World Youth Day and all these wonderful things. And um, they were really trying to convert us, I think, before we moved on. And, and they had, and Andy went to to Mundelein Seminary. Um, but you know, at that time I just wasn't, it, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't the right time. And, um, I still thought there was something right about Protestantism. I, I, I still felt, felt that certain Catholic, um, things were just too excessive. You know, the, the reverence shown to the, to the, to the Eucharistic host and, and Eucharistic adoration, for example, just, it just seemed like I'm willing to say that God is present in a profound way in the Eucharist, but, you know, adoring the host, you know, apart from the Eucharistic service, like, I don't know about that just seems like it just really did feel like, a, you know, what Martin Luther or Calvin kind of worried about this sort of excessive accretion that had grown out of the Middle Ages or something. So there were just certain things that held me back. And of course, I was, you know, at that point, basically ordained uh, in the Anglican Church. So I was pretty committed to Anglicanism. So you you were looking at these early church writings and and the history of the church you were seeing this reflected in a way in anglicanism but you're you just kind of couldn't commit to to the full the full catholic idea of those things but you certainly saw an appeal there and this is what i saw too truly really a break from my evangelical and probably your evangelical you know upbringing as well which really looked nothing like what the early church looked like even though I mean, we certainly thought it did, but once you begin to dig into that, certainly at an academic level, you realize quite quickly that these things look very different, right? So, Anglicanism right. for then for you kind of became this 
this thing that was that resembled that early church. Did you have to do any kind of reckoning to to say, well, this early church looks kind of more Catholic, but I, I I can't commit to that that whole thing right now. You mentioned the Eucharist and adoration maybe being a bit too much. Was it was it an effort for you to say, well, the the, the church looks more like the Catholic Church, but I I can't do that just yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I I wish I could say yes. I mean, I think to me, I really did feel like Anglicanism, you know, was the Catholic Church. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, it's it's you know, you read like Ignatius, and of course, he's got this the sense of you know, the, the Eucharist is really the body and blood of Christ, right? And I would be like, yes, of course. Like, it's more than a symbol, like, you know, many of my evangelical colleagues would say. Um, but you don't get him talking about Eucharistic adoration, you know? And then, of course, he would talk about obeying the bishop, you know? Uh, you know, and, and of course, as an Anglican, we believe, you know, in, in apostolic succession. So, like, oh, of course, you know, we're, we've got bishops in, in line with the apostles, you know? And so, you know, I, and and possibly it really was, uh, I hadn't gone deep enough in church history to really grasp. Like Mary, for example. Um, you know, that just wasn't on my radar, really. Uh, I mean, you know, now looking at, at the documents of the early church, you see how um, developed uh, Marian devotion was quite early on. Um, you know, you think about that wonderful prayer to Mary, um, the the subtuum uh, presidium, uh, which was probably second or third century, right? So very early on, there, there's prayers and devotion to Mary, but um, it didn't really come up too much in like Ignatius or Irenaeus or Tertullian, some of the standard church fathers that I had kind of read. Um, and so, you know, from what I could see, Anglicanism kind of got those essential elements of Catholicism, but also didn't get you into some of the politics of the papacy or, or um, uh, you know, some of these excessive devotional practices that, you know, seem very far, uh, at least at the time, seemed very far from Scripture or even the early Church. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I had kind of felt that Anglicanism got, was the best, you know, it's, as, as they, Anglicans will say, the via the via media, right? Like, we're we we bring in the best of the of the Protestant tradition, and uh, the best of the Catholic tradition, right? Or you know, somebody uh, has coined a little joke. You know, Anglicans will say, it, you know, if it's if it's true, we believe it. You know, something like <laughs> there's this idea that we we are able to integrate everything that's right, and we just reject. Uh, we're just so good at it. We we reject all the the things that have that are false, whether from the Reformation or from from Catholicism. So at that time, you know, I had really felt like, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the Anglican church was kind of the, the true church. I mean, I, you know, I, I was, you know, I wasn't just thinking like, Oh, this is maybe a great version of Protestantism. I really kind of thought it was the, it was the truth. It was the true church, of, you know, and you know, the, the Lutherans are great, but you know, they're not quite as good. <laughs> So that's kind of how I th- I saw it at the time. <laughs> so you went on then and to do your PhD. You left the colonies, headed over to Scotland to right. do your PhD. You were already ordained at that point in the Episcopal Church. That's right. That's right. I had been ordained kind of the last year of my seminary studies, um, first a deacon and a priest, and was serving in a, a parish kind of on the campus of Northwestern University. Um, outside of Chicago, and 
And so I went over there and um, I served as a, a, a priest in the Scottish Episcopal Church, a little parish in Aberdeen, and I did my PhD. Um, so it was a, a way of kind of bringing together ministry and academics, church and, and the academy. Did, did those studies, so digging deeper into, uh, in, into theology, did you did that begin to shape your faith towards the Catholic Church, or what began to to push you in that direction? Yeah, so you know, yes. Um, so I sat under John Webster, who um, is a great, great Protestant theologian, uh, and um, he was a sort of expert on. Well, he studied Everhard Jungel, who's kind of a radical Bardian. And then he kind of mellowed a little bit and, and went towards Karl Barth, who I was studying. So I kind of went there because he was an expert on Barth. Um, but really at the time that I went there, he was taking a strong turn towards St. Thomas Aquinas um, and had kind of fi- found Barth deficient. And so I'm sitting here trying to understand Barth and thinking that Barth is going to give me the answer to my questions. Uh, and he's sitting there saying, yeah, Barth, you know, that's great and all, but really Thomas is, is better. Um, and so... That was part of it, is, is kind of seeing him, him recovering things like virtue ethics and a sort of strong doctrine of creation that I think really doesn't sit too comfortably within the, uh, the Reformed tradition. Uh, and certainly Bart has um, a, a pretty poor doctrine of creation. I mean, Bart sort of tends to think of nature as like this, this really this thing that God sort of has to reject in order to, to give us salvation in a way, uh, to sort of say no to uh, in order to give us um, Jesus Christ in, in a way, and that's a little bit of a caricature, but Bart was not strong on natural theology. In fact, he has a famous exchange with Emil Brunner where it's on natural theology, and he says famously, nine, like, no, I don't, I, you know, no natural theology, that's just idolatry. <laughs> um, so, you know, Bart does not have a, a really robust doctrine of creation, and John at the time was really showing his students how bad that is and how important for our understanding of, of salvation, uh, a robust doctrine of creation is. Um, and so that was a, a pretty key part as a sort of dabbling in Aquinas um, while I was studying Bart and, and really just seeing John's theology and, and kind of falling more and more in love with it. Really, um, I wasn't tempted towards Catholicism, say, for the very end of my time studying when I found Bart dissatisfying. So I studied Bart's early theology, and I'll explain that here. Hopefully this doesn't put everybody to sleep. But um, in Bart's studies, thanks to uh, a Catholic, actually, Hansers von Balthasar, Bart had usually been seen to have a sort of dramatic, uh, well, two dramatic breaks. One was with his liberal theology in his early years. That leads to his commentary in Romans, where he kind of rejects the liberal Protestant theology of his upbringing. Um, and then another one where he sort of moves from being a really radical theologian to a much more churchly theologian. And Hansers von Balthasar kind of gave us that, that paradigm of another break, a second break in his theology. And it's based on this fact that Bart says in his church dogmatics that he's going to rename his project from Christian dogmatics to church dogmatics because he wants everybody to know that he thinks theology is a churchly discipline and he it's accountable to the church. And he, he, wants to be in dialogue with the church fathers and wants to, to really be measured by them as, as sort of their, their, the witnesses that he feels accountable to. Um, and Bart did have a strong understanding of tradition in a way. He said that, you know, it was 
the spiritual equivalent of obeying or of honoring your father and mother. You know, we should honor our the church fathers and church mothers, as it were, in our theology, and we shouldn't, you know, uh, reject them or rebel against them. Um, but I studied his early theology and tried to show that actually his sense of accountability to the church was there from the very beginning in his so-called radical phase, and that actually he just sort of realizes this more and more and becomes more and more um, consistent in that approach when he comes to his later church dogmatics project. So I studied Bart on church authority and the role of tradition and theology, but I ended up finding it dissatisfying. And that's kind of what also sparked me towards Catholicism, because I thought Bart could provide the answer for how you could, as a Protestant, hold uh, some kind of version of the authority of the church that didn't seem pragmatic. Like Anglicans, I think, have something of a pragmatic approach to church history. And, and it's sort of like, well, in history, church, the church had authority. We should probably keep the authority of the church too. But really it has been hollowed out. Like, I mean, in the, in the original days of Anglicanism, there was still a strong sense of bishops having this sort of authority in society and in the church. But nowadays, uh, that is not the case. Uh, Anglican bishops do not really see themselves as authority figures. Um, and so, on the one hand, in Anglicanism, I was finding the Episcopal leadership to be uh, diminishing. And on the other hand, I was finding that Bart was not the savior that I thought he was. He couldn't give me an account of church authority that I thought was right. And so that started getting me more and more sympathetic to the Catholic claims uh, you know, whether it was uh, about the Pope or um, even just some of the stronger claims about the the authority of, of the magisterium and the tradition. Uh, so um, it really, I don't know if you want me to keep going and kind of say what clinched the deal, but that's that's kind of what I guess maybe provided the next little kick. Yeah, well, I'm curious because this is a this is something that I've heard a lot from, and I've had a number of of Anglican clergy on this show now, clergy converts and Anglican converts uh, from the laity as well. And this is something that I I hear frequently, and I have other Anglican converts coming up on the show too, who I know will will talk about this as well. This idea of the authority, and there is a kind of authority, as you talk about in the Anglican Church, and I've had debates with Anglican friends, heated debates sometimes, on the fact that, well, Anglicans still have authority structure. They still have, they still have a bishop, so it looks like the early church. They still have things called bishops and deacons and these kinds of things. But the retort that I gave, <laughs> this friend I was debating with, and that I have heard people like yourself give as well, they have this authority structure that looks like the early church. It looks like the Catholic Church. But it's it's a parliamentarian type structure. It's it's we all vote on different yeah. things. We decide on doctrine. I remember I had Paul McCusker, who was the creator of Ventures and Odyssey, that evangelical staple for for many right. of us growing up. He he was an Anglican. He became a Catholic over this kind of issue. Right. He saw the Episcopal Church in the states just voting on things, not even quoting scripture in many cases, just quoting kind of yeah. ideas and and as you say, pragmatism to decide on doctrine. He found that quite off-putting and confusing, but he wanted that authority structure, like many of us crave, understanding that there has to be something apart from just looking at the Bible, as we did as evangelicals. So it sounds like that's yeah. what you kind of rubbed into as, an, as, a, as a priest at that time, too, studying, looking for an out, maybe, in these theologians who maybe right. could provide a structure, but turns out that they didn't. 
Yeah, I want to say a couple of things. When you talked about the, the craving for authority structure, I immediately thought of like my Episcopal colleagues who would who would say, ah, you know, that's the problem with Catholics. They they're just they need you know some sort of authoritarian patriarchal you know kind of system. <laughs> you know, they kind of have this negative understanding of authority, and that's the great virtue of Anglican. In fact, one of my priest colleagues, uh, when I had sort of made the announcement that I was uh, becoming Catholic, um, I kind of said, you know, I'm tired of just having conversations and even conversations about conversations. And he just sort of said, well, that's the great virtue of Anglicanism. You know, like, it's just, we're just, you know, we're just dialoguing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you never make any decisions, <laughs> but you just talk about what it would be like if we could make a decision. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't think it's, it's purely like I, like I need to have an authority to tell me what to do because I'm too afraid of making a mistake or, or I'm uncertain of the truth uh, or, 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 or whatever it might, or I just need to have some kind of father figure sort of psychologically, you know, there's all sorts of weird interpretations of this. You know, if, if you're skeptical of Catholicism, uh, you know, people, when they talk about the love of authority in the church, they, they think of it's like, Oh, it's some sort of, you know, disorder or something. Um, it wasn't so much that I wanted somebody to tell me what to do, or I needed that kind of reassurance or whatever. Um, but there was a, a, a real sense of, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of what Bart said is that there is, you know, we are obligated to our past. You know, we, in there, who are we, whatever we are in, in a certain sense, is only possible because of, of what people have done before. Like I'm, I'm only a Christian because my parents were Christian and, and their parents. And, you know, and, and, and of course that always goes back to the, the early church. And there was, there was a sense of, I mean, for me at least, a kind of desire to, to acknowledge that in humility um, and, and, and um, to cherish that. I think, you know, one of the big things for me becoming Catholic was the loss of my father unexpectedly. He passed away um, of a sort of heart attack, right, you know, just sort of instantly um, when he was 61, which is a fairly young age. Um, and that opened up, well, I shouldn't say it opened up something. It, it, it solidified uh, and kind of made me able to see something that I really believe deep down and was part of me becoming Anglican in the first place, which is, you know, human beings are loved by God incredibly. Uh, and, and that, you know, they're made in his image. Uh, he gives us, you know, all these things, including authority, you know, you know, Christ in his ministry didn't do it all himself. He gave authority to his apostles. Um, and he told them to go out uh, and share that ministry with others. Um, and, you know, that's something like, you know, he really does trust us in a way. And I think there's, there's something wrong. There's really something wrong with the modern attitude of the past is a big mistake. They didn't have enough science. They didn't have enough information. They didn't have enough ethical sensi sensitivity you know, um, they didn't know what they were doing. The early church, the medieval church, the Protestant church, you know, the Reformation, whatever it might be, they didn't get it. Me as an enlightened modern, I can now sit and look at history and look at the scriptures and look at Christianity and know now what it really is all about. What the tr And that, that for me was so much of what my Protestant experience was, is I or my school of thought, you know, my, my you know, my fellow uh, Christians, uh, the scholars that I was a part of, or the school that I was a part of, 
we can somehow get it right. Even though everybody else is messed up, we can figure it out. Um, and, and that is, 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 uh, really prideful. And I think, uh, deeply problematic. And it really wasn't the kind of attitude that I thought Bart got right, which is that humility in, in listening to the past and appreciating it uh, and taking your place amongst it. Um, that was a big appeal for me in Anglicanism is, I, you know, I was saying the same prayers that have been said over the centuries. You know, I'm, you know, when I became Catholic, going to some of these churches and these shrines and kneeling where people have, have been in the same place, kneeling and praying, you know, for thousands of years. I mean, that there, there's, of course, on one level, it's very romantic and it's very, um, uh, reassuring. Sure. There's a confidence that you get like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm standing in line with a num- number of other people, but at the same time, there's something that just about, um, of, of being part of something that is bigger than yourself, you know, that, and, and that's a, that's a corny way of putting it really, but being part of, of, um, a tradition that you didn't create and that you're not responsible for. Um, and so that, I guess, I don't know if that totally gets at the, the reason why authority in the church was so important for me. I mean, the other part of it was, yeah, I was an Anglican priest and I'm trying to get up there and preach to these people every Sunday and tell them what they ought to believe and tell them how they ought to live and explaining the Bible to them. And they were looking at me like I was crazy, like they had never heard this stuff before. And I'm like telling them what the Bible means. And I just found that, my goodness, they have never been catechized. And they've never been catechized because their priests in the past have been embarrassed about Christianity and they've learned a really bad version of Christianity that's like, well, we don't really know how much of this stuff is actually true. So just get up there and tell them that God loves them and it's all going to be okay. And he kind of accepts them. And so like, that's all they had heard is like just every sermon was some sort of form of like, it's okay. God loves you. Don't feel so bad about yourself, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm sitting there trying to, to tell them like, Hey, we should forgive the person who like you're mad at and you like won't look at in church, you know? And, you know, I'm like trying to address the dysfunction that's in our church. And they're like looking at me like, what are you, t- <laughs> you think like this really means something? You know, like, and, um, I realized in that moment is like, on one level, like they could just go down to another church, um, and hear a totally different version of Christianity. And like, how do I even say that my, you know, from my perspective, I'm giving them like historic, classical, biblical Christianity, but they're looking at me like it's just like James Merrick's view of Christianity. He's like this theologian guy with a PhD and he's kind of inventing this stuff. Um, And I realized there too, like I needed like a church to kind of say like, yeah, James is like, he's speaking for us as it were. Um, He's not, this is not like his view. It's, it, he's representing this, the, the church. And that, that just wasn't there in Anglicanism. I mean, what you were saying earlier, sorry, I'm kind of going on and on here, but what you were saying earlier about the, um, the dialogues and the, the not making any decisions. And, you know, I, I experienced that quite a bit when we were discussing the question of same sex marriages. Um, the bishop had a speak. For five minutes, he, well, he selected a couple of priests to speak for five minutes, followed by 10 minutes of silence. No response, no questions, no follow-up, no rebuttal, just somebody gets up and kind of shares their view for five minutes, and then there's 10 minutes of silence. And then there was no discussion or anything at the end, and then we voted on, on the subject. And um, 
you know, it was like, well, this is a very substantial issue. First of all, five minutes is not enough to, to even do anything justice. But then to not have that conversation, it just, I made, it made me see that there was no unity in the church. Because I could get up there and say, well, here's, how, well, here's what Scripture means. And then you can get somebody who says, well, no, 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 we don't really know if that's true. You know, modern critical methods, you know, Paul didn't know what we know about homosexuality, so we don't have to really listen to that part of Scripture. And, you know, like, there's no interpretive unity. There's no theological unity. And the goal of Anglicanism, in my experience, towards the end was, how do we all get together, given the fact that we all disagree? How can we all stay together and not break, despite the fact that we hold radically contradictory views of Christianity? Um, and we couldn't agree on biblical interpretation, theology, morals, anything, even models of ministry. Um, and so it really, that, so this is where it really becomes important for me is, what I saw at the end of my experience as an Anglican was the same thing I saw when I was a kid in fundamentalism. It's not intellectually serious. It's just, you know, kind of don't ask too many questions. Don't get too far into it because then you're going to get into a disagreement. And we, we want to just all pretend like we're, we love each other and we're all together and we are, you know, so tolerant of each other and our diversity. And it just, it was anti-intellectual. Um, it was just sort of like, it was all politics. And I was like, I don't, I'm not interested in that. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to get up on a Sunday morning for, you know, a kind of sham, you know, I mean, it's either real and it's thoughtful and it's serious and you can, uh, you know, apply your mind to it and live your life according to it. Um, or I just felt like Anglicanism was kind of faking it, you know, and kind of what you said with bishops, the way I understood the authority of bishops was, they have the appearance of the Catholic tradition. You know, we have that threefold office and the bishops are supposed to have authority in the church, but in actuality, they don't have authority, like in any kind of meaningful sense. Um, you know, they, they, you know, they can't get up there and tell their priests that this is what you have to preach or you have to teach. Um, yeah, that at the end of the day, all that stuff is sort of voted on. And, uh, and all that kind of stuff can be changed because the spirit might be doing a new thing. It's kind of how we, you know, we would often hear in the Anglican church, oh, you know, the spirit's doing a new thing. We thought that that was the case, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but now, now we see something different. The spirit's doing a new thing. <laughs> so it just, yeah, it became more and more, um, it became more and more like my experience as a child when I kind of became disinterested in Christianity, mm-hmm. but it just seemed like there was not much there. Sorry, that was a long explanation, but hopefully <laughs> I think hopefully that was I think that was fantastic and you touch on so many points that are are so are so prescient, so important I think to underscore. One of those being the idea of of progression. You mentioned just now, well maybe the spirit is moving in a new direction now. Maybe there's some kind of progress happening here. I mean, you mentioned it earlier too. Maybe we know more than we used to. This kind of idea that we're smarter than those guys used to be. I, I can think of a conversation that I had with somebody when I was first thinking of becoming Catholic and they posed the question and I, I was talking about how well, the Catholic church looks like the ancient church and has these authority structures that the ancient church does and the Eucharist and the sacraments. And this person I was speaking with said back to me something to the, along the lines of, well, well, why is older any better? Like, why does it matter that the church looks like the church used to be? And we, you know, and mm. the, and, and the assumption underlying that was that, well, we don't have to do the old things. Like we've progressed since then. We've, we've improved since then. And, I mean, 
now I'd have a lot more to say to, to him. I was kind of tongue-tied at the time, but I've thought about that for a long time since then. I mean, this narrative of progress, I think as you're underscoring here, this isn't the church that, that, that Christ built is constantly progressing and getting better and improving and becoming, I don't know, more liberal or more inclusive or, or, or different. I mean, that's not, that's not who God is. God is not this ever-changing, ever-morphing thing. And I don't think that we have any evidence that that is the kind of church that he intended to found, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it is it is rooted, really, in a, in a interpretation, you know, like a, a sort of very um, bad but seemingly sophisticated interpretation of the Bible, right? Oh, you know, the ancient Israelites, like they, you know, they had all these different views, you know, like, I mean, you know, and he, and and he, uh, sort of more secular, progressive scholarship. It's like, oh, they didn't—they weren't even monotheists, really. You know, there's, you know, there's talk of God being the highest God above all the other gods. So they probably still had some kind of, you know, uh, polytheism for a while in ancient Israel, and they weren't just monotheists right away. And and Moses didn't really write this stuff, and you know, so all that stuff's like later, and so. When he was actually around, they were probably really just pagans, you know. I mean, they probably were, but I mean, uh, on some level, that's why God had to institute you know, the sacrificial system and, and all these things to try to teach them the right way. But, but you know, the, but you know, they would just say that, you know, even then they didn't have uh, any of that understanding or or sort of teaching. Um, so there's there's kind of this idea now where like the Bible is just this like big conversation, you know, amongst different traditions and. And different viewpoints, and and even the New Testament authors, you know, there's some discrepancies there, and the the disagreements between the gospel writers, right, about when things happen, and the different emphases. So they kind of look at the Bible as like it's just this very pluralistic understanding, uh, uh, you know, of, of a pluralistic presentation of of the different faith traditions from these different regions, and that's what we can do today. You know, we're just we're just here to kind of have these different uh, expressions and experiments, you know, with, of, of faith and, and, um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's all there is, you know, there, but I mean, again, that's not dignifying. Uh, and it's not, um, and I, I don't think it is ultimately what God promises us, you know, in the scriptures, you know, to lead us into all truth, you know, that we will prevail over the gates of hell, right? There's, there's a kind of, um, promise that actually we'll know the truth and and we'll be able to profess it and we'll you know we'll be able to understand it maybe not all completely and exhaustively and perfectly all the time but there is this sense that you know we're not going to be you know totally confused and have no idea of what the right way is and all we can do is just sort of affirm each other's views um but i mean again for me uh I look at Catholicism as incredibly dignifying. It's it's saying God made you in the image and likeness of himself. Um, you can be holy, right? The saints, like you can't, like that's not a sham. Like that you can be holy. You can be virtuous. You can be, uh, you can understand the truth. You can learn more. You can contemplate God. You can understand God. Um, and there, before there can be authority, people can have authority. God entrusts people with authority. Um, and there's a, that's a really highly dignifying thing about humans. That's the thing I don't understand. Is on the one hand, those who are more pluralistic and inclusive, they kind of say, oh, you know, we affirm humanity. But really, they have a low view of humanity, that humanity can't figure out the truth. 
you know, we, you know, there's really no morality. We can't really be good. Um, so we just have to accept our badness. You know, I'm only human. It's something I would hear all the time. I'm only human. In other words, like I'm really not that great. I'm basically an evolved primate, you know, don't expect me to be good. And uh, yeah, I think that's the, that's a, that's a real sharp contrast. What I found in Catholicism was a really affirming, a, a truly affirming thing of my humanity. Not one that just said, Hey, yeah, you're a terrible mess. You don't know anything. You're pretty bad. You're a bad father. You're a bad husband, but God still kind of pats you on the back and accepts you anyways. Um, you know, just don't kill anybody or something like that or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, it's like a really low bar. And, you know, I found in Catholicism like a challenge. Like, you're worth it, you know. I love you and I want you to be holy. I want you to be like me. Um, you know, um, and I think that that's a much more humanizing thing. Uh, and I think I think we see that in our own culture, right? Like, there's this total collapse of of respect for dignity despite the supposed tolerance of our age, Right. We now feel like we can just, you know, loot and riot and and just hurl obscenities at people and say some of the nastiest things, supposedly in the name of tolerance. Um, And yet, you know, it's actually the past that had a much more humanizing understanding uh, and much more humane culture, despite all the the sort of hierarchical and authoritarian structures that everybody gets nervous about today. This idea is very profound that that God dignifies us by wanting us to be more like him to giving us to giving us priests and bishops who have authority yeah. of giving us the sacraments to help us become more like him i mean i want to ask you in a minute about the eucharist because that was an issue for you you said earlier when you're looking into the catholic church yeah. but i mean just the idea that god gives us these tangible things that we can do to make him more like him i just feel like right. There's, there is this great grace, this great kind of dignity that God has given to us, to, to humankind, that the Catholic Church really, I mean, since the beginning, as the church that Christ founded, we believe, has really put front and center and, and, and given to the people and said, hey, God wants you to have this, and this is, this is who he is. I don't know, it's, it's in stark contrast to, to my evangelical upbringing, and I think definitely to the, the way that Anglicanism would have treated places of authority and this, like you said, like, oh, I'm only human, I don't, I don't know, that kind of attitude. Does that, does that make any sense? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, to, to talk about the, the Eucharist, you know, I mean, uh, you know, as I had kind of said earlier, I mean, I think pretty, pretty early on I did have a, a, a high view, I guess you could say, of the Eucharist. You know, I really did think that something was going on. I don't know if I was prepared to call it transubstantiation. But, you know, I did really think that there was a real profound uh, transformation of the bread and wine um, and that, that Christ was truly present in some sense uh, through the bread and wine. So, um, you know, I always, when I celebrated um, the Anglican rite, uh, well, I should, should clarify that because now there's like an Anglican rite in the Catholic Church, right? But but the, the sort of Anglican liturgy... Um, uh, you know, I would I, I I would really try to to reverence what was happening and not just sort of rip through it or, you know, um, you know the, the, I would you know I would genuflect you know uh, I would genuflect anytime I entered into a church or the tabernacle you know like I really did have a kind of higher view of of the Eucharist as an Anglican 
So um, I think actually to go to the point of where my understanding of Eucharistic adoration changed, um, and this kind of gets me further along in the in the story of my uh, reconciliation with the Catholic Church, is when I was in Scotland, there was a monastery, a medieval monastery that still had monks. Um, uh, it, was a, it was a Benedictine monastery uh, called Plus Garden Abbey. And if anybody goes to Scotland, you've got to go to Plus Garden Abbey. It's unbelievable. But I would make a habit to go there as much as I could, sometimes for a week, sometimes there's just even for an evening. And there was one time where I was having a really difficult time. Um, you know, I was really wrestling with Catholicism, with my own parish ministry, and my father had passed away. So I was dealing with sort of a lot of a lot of things and going through. I, I would, don't know if I would say it was depression, but it was like it was a lot of distress psychologically and spiritually. And I went to, um, to Postcard Abbey for an evening and, uh, they did, um, oh, I can't even remember what, uh, our prayer it was. I want to say it was, it was probably evening prayer. Um, and they did Eucharistic benediction. Um, and so there was adoration for, uh, I think it was an hour. And then they, uh, did benediction with the you know the, the blessed sacrament, and that was a really being at Plus Garden was a big part of my own journey um, because the holiness I mean, and when I say holiness I don't mean that all these monks were you know you know practical saints but um, but the kind of reverence they showed for for Christ in their worship, in their prayer. Um, and the, the sort of peace and silence and, and there's the, the sense of this is what really matters. And it was such a, you know, monastery is such an interesting juxtaposition, right? Like the world's out there busy doing all this stuff. It's frantic. And, you know, you, then you have this, this place, which is like filled with silence and, you know, the simple habits and, it's, you know, it's, but like, it's like that this is what really makes the world go round, right? These prayers, this worship. Um, and I think that there was one night where I went up there and they, they had adoration for an hour and that hour went by like that, you know, it was super fast, but it was intense. It was beautiful. And um, I think from that point on, I kind of realized, you know, Christ is present in the Eucharist in, in a whole different way than I had even sort of thought. Um, before and that kind of I guess made made me have more peace about uh, that aspect of Catholic devotion um, and uh, yeah really I think just being a part of the the uh, plus garden Abbey I ended up becoming a an oblate of the Benedictine order um, and just that spirituality that prayer uh, I think really um, was important for getting me through I would say this I think I had you know, when my father passed away and when I was starting to feel the, the Anglicanism that I loved and joined and, um, and the theology that I thought was right, when all that stuff was kind of crumbling, um, I could have, I think, just done what a lot of cynical evangelicals do, right? It's just sort of, oh, this stuff is a total crock, you know, I mean, just sort of walk away and kind of try to become more adult and mature about it. And I've, you know, I've grown out of that or whatever. But the thing that kept me firmly rooted and made me go deeper was that um, just growing deeper in prayer and experiencing Christ in a much more profound way. And over and over, my profound experiences of Christ were at the Catholic monastery, at the Catholic mass when I would go there, 
on Wednesdays for just for my own spiritual benefit as a, as an Anglican um, with the Roman Catholic bishop who became a great friend of mine um, with the Roman Catholic deacon and priest who also became good friends and in the communal circle that we did together. Um, and more and more, I just felt so much more at home there and, and felt like that integrated so many deep convictions and, and beliefs and, and my own uh, growing spiritual life. Um, that, you know, that's where I just felt at home. So you, you left the Anglican priesthood. You were married. I, I think you had kids, mm-hmm. it sounds like. Yeah. At the time. Yep. I mean, what is that experience like? Because that seems, and I've talked to other clergy converts, some who've had families and some who haven't. It, that seems like a very difficult thing to do. When you, I mean, your your livelihood is riding on your career, uh, in a sense, as as a minister, as an Anglican priest, what was that experience like for you? That that, that it seems terrifying. Yeah, you know, it was. Um, yeah, on one level, it wasn't terrifying, uh, <laughs> and I don't know if that was because I was just naive about everything. It's possible, <laughs> um, but um, I think I was just so attracted to Catholicism. You know, I mean, there, it really did come to a point where it's like, I can't, I can't not be a Catholic anymore. You know, like, um, it's like, this was so, such a deep yearning, um, within myself that it kind of really didn't matter, um, what, you know, if I had to be a plumber or, 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 you know, whatever, um, it's sort of that, that was so important, um, which was such a great thing in a way, because like I said, you know, you know, in high school and in college, I kind of thought this stuff wasn't really worth taking seriously. And I'd always kind of had a sort of a version of, of, of piety as kind of, you know, just a lot of sappy emotionalism or something. And, 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 um, and I think, you know, for me to kind of, um, go from the intellectual more deeply into, uh, the, the, the sort of passion of piety as it were, was really neat in a sense. I guess, it, you know, it, I think for too long, it just felt like I was faking it. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was ordained, uh, as an Anglican, I was ordained in a, um, it was sort of more of a charismatic version of Anglicanism. And at the end of the ceremony, they, everybody kind of lifted up their hands and praise, you know, like very boldly. They were all, you know, you, as you know, from being a Pentecostal, like that kind of thing, like just very <laughs> unashamed. I'm kind of like reserved in a way. Um, and I, so like, it just feels really weird to like lift my hands up in, in general. So like, there's this picture of me and like all these people who are like raising their hands with like these, you know, beaming smiles in the face. And I'm kind of there like all stoically with like my hands kind of open. <laughs> it's like the best I could do. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't have, um, you know, I was always a little nervous of, of getting too carried away with devotion or piety. Um, and I think, you know, the monastery kind of that experience uh, of prayer there, um, really sort of made me go deeper in devotional life and have that passion. Um, I still don't know if I would, I would, would, um, you know, wave my hands in a service. I still think I would probably be uncomfortable with that, but, but that's more for personal reasons than, you know, just my personality than, than actual, um, feeling like it's not genuine, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Look, I want to touch on one more thing that you brought up, and then I want to see if there's anything else that you want to add to this conversation. It's been fantastic so far. You mentioned earlier, and I, I've talked to so many converts who said similar things, the idea of you you, you kind of want to be, be part of something bigger. And you said it kind of sounds a little bit cheesy, mm-hmm. and, and, and maybe it does. But I, I, I get what you mean. I have in front of me here an article about... Mark Galley, a fellow Anglican. Oh, right, yeah. The, the former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, and I'm happy to say a, a guest on the podcast. Oh, fantastic. And what he, what he writes here is, is when, when he's asked, why become Catholic? One of his responses is, I wanted to be a part of something bigger. And then he goes on right. to talk about submitting himself to the teachings of the church and the practice of the church and the practice of the sacraments and these kinds of things. And this is a pull, a, a strong pull that so many of us converts feel of being part of something bigger or, 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 or you know, in quotes, submitting to something larger. We, we come from these traditions, right? And Anglicanism is, is full of this, the idea of, well, everyone can kind of do their own thing and we're happy in this kind of umbrella of Anglicanism or, or as evangelicals, we can kind of do our own thing. And if we don't like what our church is doing, we can just leave that church and go to a different evangelical church that does a bit different kind of things there. There's no sense of, of authority. And, and, and maybe, maybe we'd say the Bible is the authority. I, th- I think we would say that. But then, of course, how does that play out? I mean, we, we have different interpretations and we kind of pit them against each other and there's no real way of deciding who has read their Bible the right way. There's there's all of this in the Protestant world, right? So when somebody like you or, or I or, or Mark become Catholic, there is this profound sense of, of being part of something bigger and, and longer and older and richer. And the idea of this magisterium, which, which we believe as Catholics, is kind of what Christ gave the apostles to help guide the church, that, that tradition to help interpret the Bible and, and what we believe and understand. And I mean... Can you can you talk a bit? I mean, I've I've rambled already a bit about that. Can can you unpack that a bit from your perspective? When you say part of something bigger, like what does that idea mean for you coming out of of Anglicanism as, as a member of the clergy? What does it mean to you to be part of something bigger here in the Catholic Church? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think there's many aspects of it. Um, you, you know, because I mean, on one level what I want to say is being part of a historic church. Um, but of course I would have said that as an Anglican, I would have thought that, you know, being an Anglican, I'm, I'm in touch with, you know, the, the, the church throughout history. Um, and, you know, I, with some good reason in the sense that not only do we have, uh, the liturgy, um, and, and these, these sort of traditional practices of prayer and, and spirituality. And, and, you know, we would, we would celebrate the saints, um, and so there was a lot of that kind of sense of being a part of the big tradition. Um, but I, you know, as I kind of had said earlier, I came more and more to see that that was in form only. It wasn't in content. Um, you know, so for example, I would talk about the saints as an Anglican priest and the comment that I would often get back from parishioners was, well, can you tell us a little bit about their struggles? Can you tell us about their flaws? You know, you know, 
they just don't seem very human. Which again, I think that's like the wrong view of humanity. Like to be human is not to be terrible and awful. That's to be sinful, right? Like to be human is to be good and beautiful uh, and in the image of God, you know? Um, but they wanted to hear these stories of how the saints are actually not that great at all, you know, so that they could be more like them. <laughs> and so what I kind of experienced was they celebrated the saints. They did the liturgical year. They had the liturgy, but they really, it was like, it was like a romantic view of it, right? It's like, oh, isn't this neat? It's kind of like going to a museum, you know, or, or like, um, going to Disney world. It's like this fun cultural experience, you know, um, where you go into this medieval cathedral and you hear the organ and you see the choir and the vestments and this, these beautiful stained glass windows. It's really fun to do that, you know, and, um, it's kind of this neat experience, like going on a ride in Disney world or something. Um, but it wasn't like it really, um, they didn't really believe it was true, you know, uh, in, in a kind of, I mean, I would, they probably wouldn't say that they wouldn't say, look, I don't believe it's true, but I think on some level, they didn't think it was all real for them today. It was like, it was really neat back in the day when that kind of stuff happened and that was possible, but it's not something that happens here now. And I think that is, I mean, maybe that's where Newman comes into this, right? That great Anglican convert to Catholicism, uh, John Henry Cardinal, Cardinal Newman. Um, actually, fun little story. I was given one of his rare relics uh, when I was received into the church. The bishop gave me his relic of John Henry Newman. It was beautiful, uh, very unexpected. But um, Newman kind of saw the need for a living voice here and now in our own day, not just in the past, like in the first couple centuries of the church, like the Anglicanism, uh, Anglicanism of his day, but that there was a real, that the, the, that church is still present here and now, and you can be part of it. So I think some of that being part, some part of something bigger than yourself has to do with with being a part of the living tradition, right? Like not just, I can study it as an artifact, um, but something that's actually here and now that I can be, a, I can pray to the saints right here and now, you know, they're still alive. They're with me. They're rooting for me. Right. Um, that, that kind of sense, I think too, it has to do with family. You know, um, right now I have the great privilege of working with Dr. Scott Hahn and one of the great themes of his writings is, it's this idea of family, you know, the covenant is a way in which God makes us his family and, and makes the church family. You know, uh, we're in a sense, you and I are more of a family, you know, spiritually than, than even my own kin, right? I mean, that, that sort of deep family bond that we have in the mystical body of Christ. Um, and I, I see that, like, again, when my, my father passed away, some aspects made sense to me that never, I never had to really experience before. Like, you know, one of the things I wanted to do, uh, you know, if you look at my phone, for example, I still have the last message that we sent, right? And, you know, I mean, that's very common. Lots of people do that. They hold on to those things, right? That from their, their past loved ones, their, their clothing, their trinkets, you know, just kind of keep them alive. And well, that's the same thing we do in the church with relics, right? Uh, we'll hold on to these people that we love, that are our family, that are brothers and sisters, our fathers and mothers, right? Cherish them. They are, uh, they are our family. Um, and, and, you know, I, you know, I think it's weird, you know, you think about evangelicals, they get into the presence of a shrine to a saint or a grave or something, and they feel really weird. Like, oh, this is like wrong. I'm like, you should feel the same way you feel when you go to the grave of your loved one. You know, it's like, this is your spiritual brother or sister. Right. Um, and I think that's a big part of it. The sense of being 
in the family of God, and that really means something. You're not on your own. I think that there is a tyranny in modern individualism, and in as much as Protestantism is a form of modern modernism, uh, you know, a tyranny that you've got to figure it all out yourself. You're on your own, and you've got to, you know, like think about Immanuel Kant, right? Dare to think for yourself. I mean, that's a bit of a paraphrase, right? But dare to use your own reason. Dare to think for yourself. You know, you've got to figure it out yourself um, with your own mind. Um, that's an incredible burden that you're on your own. You can't trust anyone to figure it out for you. You know, you have to be suspicious of authority. You got to figure out Christianity for the first time in your life lifetime, um, and that's um, that's just not possible. And I think being a part of you know recognizing that in humility that I am a limited creature, and that part of what God has done as a grace to me is given me witnesses, given me the faith give, through the the saints, through the magisterium, through the bishops, through the apostles. Um, you know, he's everywhere shown that he uses people to communicate, right? I mean, that's what he's done from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, in the image and likeness, right? And then on and on with Noah and Abraham and Moses, right? Uh, David, you know, you can go on and on to the apostles and to the present-day church. God uses people. And there's something wrong about the idea that I can't listen to them. I can't take advantage of that. Um, I can't accept that because it's on me to figure it out. Um, and so, yeah, I think being a part of something bigger is recognizing one's limitations and recognizing the great gift of the family of God. <laughs> That's fantastic. I was thinking as you were talking, I, I had a discussion with Keith Nestor and Matt Swaim, two, two converts to the Catholic faith, about sola fide. And we were talking about this idea of of and I kept I kept bringing this up much to their annoyance maybe but the idea of this this European peasant farmer family who would have gone to to mass to Catholic church they belong to the same church that that we belong to now and what's remarkable mm. about that is is that they couldn't have as individuals figured out their faith they couldn't they weren't literate they weren't they didn't have access to theological texts or theologians or these deep church thinkers or the, or the bible i mean right. apart from it being read in the well, catholic bible church studies, yeah right? so they, they couldn't have figured out their faith for themselves this kind of individualist modern kind of progressive idea of christianity that we all do it for ourselves they submitted to the authority in in humble submission. I like the word you use, humility. They submitted in humble submission to the the church, the same way that that you and I have to humble ourselves and realize we can't figure this out for ourselves. And goodness gracious, I mean, this was a shocker for me looking into Catholic theologians for the first time as an evangelical that these questions I was wrestling with the problem of suffering, of of evil, of what baptism does, and salvation, and all these rich things were discussed by the church for for. 2000 years i hadn't tapped into any of that 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 wealth of knowledge as an evangelical christian and just right i mean submitting to that in humility realizing that wait a second if the church is what it says it is if christ founded this church and gave them the authority to work these things out to bind and loose and to teach with authority and that was passed on to the apostles i got to just submit to that in humility and and be a part of that living tradition, which links me back to that European peasant farmer family that did that could do nothing else but that. I mean, it's I don't know. To me, it's this remarkable kind of 
uh, stream to step into uh, of historic Christianity, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, as you were talking there about being in touch with these Catholic theologians who have wrestled with these questions, the same questions we have, on the one hand, I think that does show the sense in which we're all involved, like as different as we are in terms of our historical and cultural circumstances. You know, we have iPhones. St. Thomas Aquinas did not, you know. Um, but uh, although he could dictate, like apparently the five secretaries <laughs> at the same time, which is maybe the version of the iPhone in that time. But, um, you know, we have different cultural and historical experiences, but yet we're all involved in the same fundamental spiritual situation. You know, we still have these deep metaphysical questions, right? These deep questions about, um, you know, who we are and, um, you know, what is the nature of reality and uh, what has God said to us? And, you know, what is our calling? What is our vocation, right? Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, we can see that that spiritual connection that we have, um, it, you know, in in seeing that they were they were interested in the same questions. You know, we haven't, like, figured out these new questions that nobody thought of before, and we're so smart now, and therefore Christianity is not true, because we're the first people to think, you know, like... <laughs> Um, wonder what happened with the Native Americans, you know, how, who preached the gospel to them or whatever, you know, how could they have been saved or, or, or whatever else kind of question that, that people get vexed about today. Um, or, you know, or something like uh, the, the Canaanite uh, conquest, you know, the conquest of the land of Cana, you know, so like people get really worked up about the, the genocide and, and uh, the harem warfare in, in the Old Testament. It's like, well, the early church fathers were bothered by that too. They weren't just like, oh yeah, no problem. Um, so they've they've wrestled with these things, but you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, for me, one of the big moments in my trans, uh, transition from the sort of evangelical upbringing into Anglicanism was going into a medieval cathedral. Um, it was Salisbury Cathedral in England, and just seeing the magnificence, the grandness of that cathedral, and and learning that they designed it so that you feel the you know the sort of transcendence and you know, immensity of God, the eternality of God, the majesty of God when you go into that building, like that, that's what that space does to you when you see these massive ceilings, you know, and anybody who thinks that medieval people didn't, you know, weren't smart, just figure it, just go to a medieval cathedral and realize that they built that without cranes, really, you know, or any kind of <laughs> modern technology, you know, bulldozers or backhoes, you know, digging these stones and moving them. It's incredible. Um, but um, when I read Catholic theology, like seriously for the first time, it was that same kind of experience. I remember reading some of the uh, encyclicals and the catechism even, and seeing the way in which quotes from the church fathers are brought in. And there was this real sense, I mean, Anglicans talk about dialogue, but it's really a dialogue amongst themselves. When, you know, they don't really talk about, about, you know, the scriptures, as you said, or the church theologians or whatever. It's just sort of what I think and feel, you know, like get up and for five minutes and tell me what you feel about this question. Um, but when I read the church documents, it was like, this was a real dialogue. They, you know, they listened to the theologians of the past, you know, they quoted Irenaeus and, 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 you know, they, there was this real sense of being part of this living tradition, you know, that, that what was being said then is now being said again, maybe, Maybe something is being deepened um, or accented a little differently in our time, but it's it's the same um, message. It's the same revelation that is being communicated, that was communicated by Irenaeus and Augustine and 
and uh, Maximus and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and, you know, uh, Robert Bellarmine or whoever it is, right, that, that we're saying the same thing. We're carrying on this tradition. And it was that that sense of being in this grand conversation, like it was like being in that grand cathedral that you're, that you're, you're just taking, you know, you, when you sit down in a cathedral, you feel really small, um, not in a bad way, not in like a humiliating way, but in a like, wow, I get to be here. This, what a great honor. This is an amazing place. I get to take up a little place in this incredible building that's been a, a site of worship for, you know, thou, a thousand years or whatever it's been. And likewise, when you read the church's teaching, I think it's like that experience of like, wow, I get to, I get to add my voice to this great tradition. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that sense of, of, um, you know, being, being, uh, a beneficiary and being humble enough to benefit from others and not feel like you have to figure it out for yourself is, is really important. And it's very liberating. It's very dignifying. Actually. It's not what people often think, which is like, you know, you sort of given up on thinking and you just sort of accept what other people have, have thought. I don't think that's, that's like just the worst way of understanding this, you know, but it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a caricature, unfortunately, that a lot of people think is, is true. Yeah. <laughs> Very well said. Well, listen, I want to give you a chance to, to maybe give us one last parting thought here. I appreciate your time in this conversation. I know that I have Anglican clergy listening to this podcast because they email me. <laughs> Good and bad. I wonder what you'd say to somebody who, you know, thinking of, of the journey you've been on, you left the Anglican uh, priesthood. That was, um, it had to be difficult. I mean, others have done that too, and, and they've shared their thoughts on this podcast. And curious to know what you would say to somebody who is in that position to, to speak to that person, whether to encourage them to, to dig deeper, to maybe bury their head in the sand. I don't know. What would you <laughs> just avoid all yeah. Catholic authors and theologians and just keep on living life uh, status quo? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess if you don't, if you're, if you don't want to convert, then, then you probably want to stop reading uh, <laughs> or at least stop reading Catholic theology. Um, but, or, you know, don't go to a Benedictine monastery. Um I don't know. There's a couple different things. I mean, it is hard, I should say. I know I didn't give that impression earlier, but I do miss celebrating the Eucharist, you know, on one level. I mean, there is a, and preaching, you know, I mean, I loved doing that and, um, and, you know, being at the altar. And even though I don't think, you know, what I was doing was the same thing what a Catholic priest was doing, but, but there's some signs and symbols, right? As the catechism says, and you know, it is a very beautiful and moving and, and powerful thing. And, and it was actually formative for, you know, I mean, really taking that seriously, I think helped me see, you know, why Catholicism is true. It's like, because they actually believe that this is really happening. Whereas, you know, there's not a lot of space for that anymore. in Anglicanism. I mean, I think it is hard in that sense to give that up. Um, and of course there are options, right? I mean, there's the pastoral provision, there's the Anglican ordinariate for, for, um, converted, uh, Anglicans and, and other Protestants. So it's, you know, possible to, to become a Catholic priest. Um, you know, if that's, if that's, uh, the calling, if that's calling is recognized, uh, in, by the church, but, um, you know, that, that's an aspect of, it. I think though, um, 
I think one thing I would say is, you know, you do eventually have to make a decision. Uh, I don't think um, lingering or, or, you know, or waiting around forever is a, is a healthy thing. Uh, I think, you know, you do have to be accountable to the truth that has been revealed to you. And, and, you know, you sort of have to, um, if you feel that God is really uh, moving you in this direction and revealing the truth of, of Catholicism to you, you, you know, at some point in time, despite the practical difficulties, and there are many, right? I mean, you could, you know, you, you know we were fortunate that we could move back to the United States and, and live with my mother, of course, was just trying to pick up her life after the loss of my father. So we had that opportunity. Some people might not have that. So it's very difficult. I mean, I will say that, you know, we were well taken care of. Uh, the Catholics definitely helped us in, in that move and, and, you know, in preparing for, you know, preparing things for us. And um, of course, you know, finding me a job and so on. So there's a lot of resources that are available uh, for you as you navigate that tradition, you, you know, that, that, that uh, transition rather. Um, and so I would say, you know, look into it. You know, the coming home network is, is, is one of the most well-known, but there are others and there are many people who are very excited and, and eager to help out. Um, so you're not alone. And I think that's one of the great things that I experienced was that sense of, yeah, you know, again, we're family, you know, I was taken care of like I was family. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the question you have to ask is, will my relationship with Christ um, be deepened and enriched and fulfilled by this, or will be will it be hindered? Um, and, you know, ask that in both ways, right, of, of Catholicism, but also of, if you're an Anglican priest, you know, uh, you know, in the Episcopal Church, staying an Episcopal priest, is that going to fulfill and enrich your faith uh, and your relationship with Christ, or is it going to hinder it? And um, uh, and is, is becoming a Catholic going to enrich it? And I, you know, I can say very, very confidently that it's only been a tremendous, you know, tr- um, transformation of myself and of my wife and of my, of our family. I mean, we have grown spiritually, uh, tremendously just in the short time that we've been Catholic, um, and, uh, have met some incredibly holy people. And, and, um, and I think, you know, that's, there's a there's a nobility certainly to to trying to stick around and be a faithful episcopal uh priest or an evangelical pastor and and do what you can for your congregation but at, at, on some level um you know what I came to realize is if I stayed an anglican priest I would just be wanting to make my congregation catholic like that would be my ministry is to try to turn them into catholic <laughs> and that's there's something disingenuous about that um, it's something dishonest and something kind of self-serving. So, um, so I think, you know, if, if you really feel like, um, that your relationship with Christ will, will deepen and, and be enriched, uh, then there's no choice really. Um, you know, I, again, I mean, I think if, if you are faced with the fact of, of knowing, and I can say this, you know, knowing Christ more, um, if you're faced with that opportunity, don't, don't say no to it for retirement, you know, a nice cushy retirement or whatever it might be. Like it's not worth it. I mean, especially if the stock market crashes after the COVID-19, you know, you don't have that. So just, 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 just go for Christ and you, somehow it will all turn out. Oh, okay. The world is ending. Become Catholic now before it's too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Very well sort said. Of off, off of Martin Luther. Oh. 
Uh, James, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you for your time. You you write in a number of different places. You uh, you do a number of different things. Where do you want to point listeners to who are interested in, in following you and following your work a little bit more closely? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really have like a, a one-stop shop. But um, but I definitely you know write for uh, different venues as you mentioned at the beginning National Catholic Register, uh, Ascension Press. I've got actually a book coming out with them here at some point. Pray for me. I've got to somehow find the time to do this uh, to finish this up. And then um, uh, I, I write for their blog, so I've got a number of articles there, and I've got an article with Angelus News as well. Um, but uh, I would also plug Emmaus Academic Press. Uh, it's a Division of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology uh, out in Steubenville, the Apostle of Scott Hahn. Uh, but Emmaus Academic Press is putting out some of the best. I mean, it makes my heart sing, the kind of theology that we're publishing. Uh, we've got some phenomenal textbooks by Lawrence Feingold. We're translating uh, a, um, uh, the opera Omnia from Thomas Aquinas, putting many of his stuff into English for the first time, and putting definitive Latin edition, uh, you know, Latin text next to it, and uh, we've got uh, uh, Matthias Shaven for the first time in English, his handbook to Catholic Dogmatics, and Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, and just fantastic works of theology from the past, but also some really cutting-edge uh, works of theology uh, in the present. And uh, it's really exciting uh, to be a part of the, the Emmaus Academic and to you know see this sort of theology that we're doing. So it's it's an answer to prayer. I mean, like I said, I, I was feeling really... Uh, sullen with the kind of theology that was being done in Anglicanism and, and to now go and, and be part of, you know, some of the best Catholic theology uh, is is a great answer to prayer. So I would say check out Emmaus Academic. Uh, the website is just uh, EmmausAcademic.com. And hey, I can't say enough good things about that press. We had we had Lawrence Feingold on the show for a two-hour chat about his massive book on the Eucharist a little while yeah. back, and uh, he's going to come back and talk about his next book he's working on, which I'm very excited to get my hands on as the well. The book, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Maybe I can uh, grease the wheels with you and get an early copy. Yeah, well, just let me know. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> James, thank you so much for being on this podcast. This has been a fantastic conversation. Listen, I want to say God bless you and your family and the fantastic work you're doing for the church. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Keith. It's been a, a real treat. And so, yeah, hopefully we'll stay in touch. I look forward to, to seeing more on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that discussion. Make sure to visit our website at thecordialcatholic.com for show notes for this show and links to my blog and articles I've been writing and have written. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and cordialcatholic at gmail.com for your feedback. I love hearing from you guys. I'll back to all the emails that I can as soon as I can. And thank you so much for your feedback, for your encouragement, for your kind notes, and notes of constructive criticism as well. It's all appreciated. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it. If you can take a second to leave a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts especially, just go on that little podcast app, click those stars at the bottom, even write a review. Those reviews help to push the podcast out to new people and grow the base of this show. 
That helps with the mission of evangelization, which underpins this whole thing. Tell a friend, spread the word, and thank you. Thank you, guys. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support this show on a monthly basis. PayPal.me slash Cordial Catholic for a one-time donation. That all is very much appreciated. As mentioned at the top of the show, we're moving me downstairs into a little nook in the basement and trying to build that a little bit to fit this equipment. And that costs money. This isn't my full-time job, so anything helps to keep this thing going and give me a space to do it. Thanks, friends. Please know that I am praying for you. Please pray for me too, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening, guys, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.